please stand to your feet this morning. I want to make sure that everyone is awake before I start the sermon, so that if midway through I see you sleeping, I know that it was my fault today, uh, not the, the time of giving. I'm so happy that you're here today. You're looking awesome. We're starting a new series uh, after our anniversary last week. Now we're coming into a new series called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. And I want to talk about a few areas of life that, if not careful, can hijack us and get us off course and cause us to, and has caused many people to lose faith and leave the faith. So uh, we're going to start that today. I think uh, today is a good day to renew my mind, to encourage my soul, to align with truth, and to walk in faith. Some of you are starting to get it. My goodness. Uh, we'll try it again. Today is a good day to renew my mind, to encourage my soul, to align with truth, and walk in faith. It helps if you point. You know what I mean? Here, 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 here. Yeah, some of you are like pointing the wrong. It doesn't matter the order you do it. Today's a good day for it. Amen? The title of my sermon is, I Doubt It. I Doubt It. Uh, Carrie sends her love to you. She, when I got on the plane yesterday, she she stayed in Tennessee. I, I wanted to see you guys, so I came back. Carrie said she'll see you next time. Uh, she said, tell everybody I love them. And I'm like, baby, if they don't know that by now, then I mean, telling them isn't going to help. But she does. She did actually think of you when I was getting on the plane yesterday and she told me bye, she loved me, and she loved you. So she'll be back soon. She's spending some time. Uh, we went to a conference uh, this week, and it was a wonderful conference. I left the conference a little bit early because I wanted to come back uh, to you this morning because I have something on my heart that I want to share with you about doubt. And it's funny how when I'm preaching a sermon, God will always kind of bring a story my way the week of or the week after. And more often than not, I live the parts of the sermon that I don't really want to live. I would prefer to live the better parts of the sermon, but I get to actually practice what I preach this morning. I don't always use Uber, but when I do, I am sent the worst driver in the city. That's the truth. Josh Dining can attest. About 10 years ago, we were in Florida, and our Uber driver uh, took us off-roading in the city, uh, and that wasn't very fun. Yesterday, I called an Uber because I was trying to make a flight and still wanted to have an early dinner with my family, so we went to a place, and I got some lovely Mexican food, birria tacos. They're so good. I know that's making you hungry right now because you've had them, and they're awesome, and I ate them, and I told my family bye, and I rushed down the street uh, to find a place where Uber can meet me, and this dude has my pen location. Now, I don't use Uber a lot, but I did see myself where I was standing, and he passed me three times right on the road, and there was no one else standing on the road. It's me with a very heavy backpack with a purple-pink hoodie, and my water bottle, and I'm standing watching him, but because I didn't know the car wasn't familiar, it took the third time for me to recognize, oh, that is for sure the car, just watching his pen. Anyway, he picked me up, and he's asking if I have luggage. I said, no, I have no luggage, just a backpack, so I throw it in the car, and he takes off running, running, driving, uh, downtown Nashville, and there are fire trucks everywhere, and there are wrecks everywhere. But listen, if you were running late to the airport, this is the driver you want. Because I thought for a moment I was in New York City, and he was weaving in and out of traffic. I, I literally started to doubt in that moment my plan of coming back here. I thought it was safer probably just to stay in Tennessee than to show back up at the Exchange Church, I thought that was going to be the end of me. I, I don't like flying, but if you're going to have an Uber driver just before the flight, the flight feels like a breeze. <laughs> so I did have many times of doubts yesterday on the way to the airport, wondering if this is what I wanted to do. How many of you have ever had your own doubts? Doubts about faith, God, healing, 
I know that I do. I have my doubts. I'm a pastor. That doesn't mean I'm doubtless. I doubt it too. I doubt things too. So I want to talk about doubt because if we're not careful, doubt will turn into something else that takes us off course and away from the faith. But first, let's invite Holy Spirit into this moment. Father, we come before you today. I thank you so much for our time together. I thank you for the word of God that is alive and it is active and it is going to bring such encouragement to our soul today. God, I ask that you would use it. Just cut this message in 150 different ways to let it apply to each of us individually as you intend. In Jesus' name, I pray, let the church say, Amen. Before you sit down, meet somebody new, two or three people. We have a lot of new people today. Meet somebody new. Ask them their name, where they're from, get their social. Then you may be seated. Social security. If you're watching online today, welcome to the Exchange Church. We love you so much. Go ahead and type something in the chat box. Get to know somebody. Tell us where you're from, where you're watching from. We're glad you're here today. A couple of years ago, I, I mean, I, I suppose I've thought this longer than that, but a couple of years ago, I started talking about aliens <laughs> in my sermons. Occasionally, a, a sprinkling an alien here, an alien there, here an alien, there an alien, everywhere an alien. And I had people, you know, ask me, why are, why are you referencing or talking about aliens? I mean, my sermons weren't built around aliens. I would just drop it here and there because I, I do understand that in the end days, there is coming a great deception upon the world. And we don't know exactly what that deception is. Scripture doesn't clearly paint that picture exactly for us, but... I had this sneaky suspicion a couple of years ago when I was hearing little things get dropped from the government or news agencies about a possible sighting here or there. And how many have driven through Roswell, New Mexico? That's a fun place to go. Scared my kids all the time when they were little. We'd drive through and I'm like, there's an alien. There's an alien. He's going to get you. I love to scare kids. And <laughs> Roswell is a great place to do that. And uh, you know, our, our culture has kind of been infatuated with the UFO sightings. Now, what do they call it? AEP? UAP? One of those. Um, we don't call them UFO anymore. We need to elevate the, the language. And um, we've kind of been, I think, groomed, this is my opinion, as a culture, as a world, to receive news about aliens being real. I said this two years ago, and people were laughing at me thinking I'm ridiculous, but what do you think about me now? (laughs) Just this week, we've seen new disclosures from the United States government. Just this week, we saw a new disclosure from Mexico and Peru, and now they're saying that they have a mummified alien? Wow. I doubt it. Now, I, don't, I, I can't prove to you that aliens aren't real. I suppose in some form or fashion, God could have maybe created a whole other universe or dimension that we don't even know about. And he's like concurrently working both sides of, you know, maybe that's why he was silent for 400 years. He got bored with us and went over here to the green men. Yeah, I don't know. I can't say for sure that it's unbiblical. I just, I do know that a deception is coming. That's what I know to be true in the word. There is a great delusion, a great deception that is going to sweep across the world. It's going to be so convincing that even the elect could be deceived. So when I talk about doubts, Doubts aren't always bad. There are some things that you should doubt. You should doubt if that pay raise is worth it. You should doubt if that move is healthy for your family or not. Like, 
there are some things you should, should doubt. And if ever you are around and millions of people have vanished and on the scene comes spaceships and aliens and they try to convince you that they've given you your philosophies and your languages and your sciences and all of that that we came from them, you need to say, I doubt it. We know who our creator is. We know that this universe came from Yahweh, that Jesus spoke the words and there was light. We know where we came from. So no matter what my eyes may see, no matter what Mexico and Peru and the United States government may try to convince me of, I know that I was fashioned and formed in my mother's womb, not by E.T., but by Jesus. I doubt it. I doubt it. Doubts, man, doubts. And doubts come at the strangest of times and the, the oddest curiosities. You know, when you're about to get married, we call it cold feet. It's doubts. Doubts. Or you're about to, I don't, I don't know, you're about to say yes to that big transition in life. This is the big break you've been waiting for. Yes, I have to give up A, B, and C, and that was part of my dream, but it's okay because I'm getting D, E, and F. It's worth the trade-off. And just before you sign on the dotted line, you're filled with doubts. Doubts. Now, I don't mind having doubts. I have doubts all the time when I'm standing in line at the ice cream shop, and I look at all the flavors, and I say, I want that one. Then I'm like, no, wait. I want that one. No, I want that. I'm having so many doubts, I end up just getting three scoops to solve the problem. Sometimes doubting works in my favor. Doubting is not bad. Look at your neighbor and say, it's okay to doubt. Doubt is not a sign that a man or a woman is wrong. Just because you're having doubts right now, maybe you're having doubts if Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe you're having doubts if God is real. Maybe you're having doubts if Jesus died and physically resurrected again. He, he did, by the way. I have a friend who is a pre-Easter Christian. He believes in Jesus, believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He believes that Jesus died on Calvary. He just doesn't believe that Jesus resurrected. He's pre-Easter Christian. I'm like, I'm not sure that you can cut that part out of the story. You're not a pre-Easter Christian. You're an unbeliever. Because that's part of the package. We believe as believers that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus made his way from heaven to earth. He became one of us so that he could live a life and draw us in relationship to his father. He was murdered on a tree on Calvary. He laid down his life for you and I. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. It would only need it three days. And on the third day, Jesus rose again from the grave. That is what it means to be a Christian, but even in those simple terms, I too sometimes doubt. How comforting is that? To be sitting here hearing a sermon from a preacher who admits that he too has doubts. It's not every day, it's not every week. And I'm not trying to backtrack or, or make it like it's not a big deal, I think. I think you should know. I doubt. When I've prayed for a friend who's dying of cancer, and I know that God heals. And I know God is going to heal that person. I, I am praying, and I am fasting, and I am singing in worship, and I, everything within me, all the sensory doodads inside of me say he's going to get healed. And he takes his final breath. It's 
So God, what's the deal? Hey, God. So the, the last person that you healed with cancer, were they, were they better than him? What, was that just a coincidence? Was that a, a medical mystery? And you're just not there at all? You were, your hands off on your creation? Have you had those conversations with God? I'm so glad I'm not alone. Doubting is not wrong. It's a sign that you're thinking. When you said yes to Jesus, it wasn't a call into ignorance. Oh, come on, somebody. You can be smart and love Jesus. You can be edumacated and love Jesus. Some of you didn't catch the edumacated. You can be a brainiac and still believe the word of God is true. I'm telling you, if it, if it came out 100% that there was no God, you know what I would worship? If, if it was proven that there was no God, I would worship the Bible. Because this thing is so perfect. It is so complex. It, this is a miracle in itself. Now, I know that this was authored by a God, but if there was proven to be no God, this would be the next thing for me. But we have doubts. And sometimes parents freak out when their kids doubt. I have five kids. Um, not all of them had a crisis of faith, but most of them. And probably the ones that haven't just haven't hit it yet. Five pastor's kids in the Rose home all reached a point, and, or all will reach a point, of having the hard conversation with their mom and dad. Hey, I want to believe you. You're my pastor. You're my dad. You're my teacher. You're my principal. You're everything. You, you clothe me. You feed me. I don't think you're lying to me intentionally. But I just need to know for myself. Is God really, really real? These are hard questions. And the room is quiet right now because I guarantee you we've all, all asked this question. When we've struggled, when we've fought and wrestled with sin, when we've had breakdowns, when we've had relationships go wrong, when we've had illnesses, when we've come against the world, we've all had these questions of, God, where are you at? Why are you not intervening? And if you're not intervening in this moment, are you really out there? And if you are real, the next question is, do you, do you actually love me? Is it just that I, I grew up believing that everyone I got close to died? Like I, I built a wall around my heart. I wouldn't connect even. I suppose I could slip into that again on this day at the age of 49 this week. 49. I know I don't look a day over 48. 49 this week. Um, I could today slip back into this where I, I will stiff arm somebody and not let you get close because I have this hidden fear that if you get close to me, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you somehow. Now, I've never killed anyone, but a lot of people around me sure have died. When I was a kid, my best friend was killed in a car accident, not much longer, I was there when my grandmother passed away. Not much longer, my horse had to get put down. Uh, not much longer, my goldfish died. And I know it's just a goldfish. Do goldfish even go to heaven? I don't know. But at the age of 12, 11, 13, it's kind of a big deal when you lay it on top of all the other things you're experiencing. And then my cousin was at my house, James, and I'm playing with him on the swing set when he has a heart attack and he dies right in front of me. I hear the moans leave his body at his last breath. And I learned at a very young age that if I love you, you're going to die. So I doubt all kinds of things. I wrestle with doubt just like you. And 
when God is silent, it complicates the doubting process. If he would just say, hey, Trey, it's okay, settle down, calm down, I've got this, I would be good. If, if he would just respond to my prayer, you know, I spend a lot of time praying some things that I don't feel like God replies back. In my own perspective, I don't feel like God replies back. I know that God responds to every prayer that enters heaven. But I don't feel like God is responding. And so when God is silent, and I think, it's easy, God, just tell me. Just tell me to take the job or not. Just tell me to marry the girl or not. Well, he kind of did that one. Just tell me to adopt the kids or not. Just tell me to get another dog or not. By the way, that answer is always no. <laughs> but when God is silent, doubt creeps in. And then when you have doubt as a believer, you feel like a less than Christian. Because you show up on a Sunday morning to a room that is filled with faith and everybody's smiling and telling you how good God is and how much he loves them. And man, you're just still just wondering if God is even real. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Does this resonate to any history of your Christian life? Well, if it does, you're not alone. There's a story in scripture that I want to take us to our text for the day. There's a story of someone who had his own doubts. In fact, there are a lot of people in Scripture who had their doubts, but the one I want to take you to this morning is John the Baptist. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your electronic devices to Matthew chapter 11. I just saw a crying baby exit the room. Well, the baby was carried out. But it reminded me of the universal doubt that we have all had. When we have babies and we're so excited and we give birth and we get home from the hospital and then we're like, what have we done? What did we sign? Oh, I'm so sorry. When are you due? It's going to be lovely. Yeah. Yes, God is all on that. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. <laughs> and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended, does not stumble, does not get upset because of me, because of Jesus. And then verse 11, after he says to go tell John that, John the Baptist that, he then turns to the crowd and starts to kind of elevate John and just talk about who John is. It's, it's summarized nicely in verse 11. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We'll talk about that. Hopefully we'll, we'll have time to get to that. But Jesus is saying, There is no other prophet that has come before John, that is greater than John the Baptist. Now, I want you to understand just how significant John the Baptist is, all right? Let's talk about him for just one quick moment. There's no book of the Bible written about John the Baptist. There are many books in the Bible called John. There's John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. There's, there's lots of Johns, but none of those Johns are this John. All right, it's another John. This John the Baptist, he is the one that comes on the scene 400 years after God has been silent. So after the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God goes dark. For 400 years, there is no prophet. There are no angels visiting anyone. Like God is just 
totally letting humanity unravel, continue to unravel and find itself in, in the ecosystem of life for 400 years. And the first thing we see is that an angel shows up on the scene to announce the birth of two people. Jesus and John the Baptist. That's pretty interesting. That already makes me think that John the Baptist is pretty cool. If an angel is going to announce and address uh, and declare the soon coming birth of Jesus, oh, and by the way, the soon coming birth of John the Baptist, that tells me that John the Baptist is probably pretty significant. John the Baptist wasn't We'll call him an outdoorsman. He's a little rough around the edges. Um, He eats locust and honey, uh, wild honey. And I imagine that he's got some cool dreads going on from lack of bathing. I imagine that you can smell John coming before John comes. Um, I imagine that if John were to enter into a toenail competition for whose is the longest, he'd probably win. If there's a competition for whose is the yellowest, he'd probably win. I know it's getting gross now, right? John the Baptist isn't a pretty picture, but he's a significant picture. He actually called out the Pharisees of the day for heresy. So, so imagine, I don't know, like, imagine this, this scruffy-looking guy who's very bold, Pedro. I like the, the word that you shared this morning, bold. He's very bold. We see that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Let's watch John the Baptist correct and rebuke the Pharisees. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John is baptizing people, And when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Who is he talking about? Jesus. Coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's he's telling this to the Pharisees. He's calling the religious authorities of his day a brood of vipers. This is intense. John is a, a somebody In fact, in his day, he's kind of like a rock star. People loved him. They loved his brutal honesty. So much so that Josephus, anyone heard of Josephus? Josephus is a secular, not not a believer. He was a secular historian back in this day. You can find his works all over the internet. You can find it in libraries. I happened upon the works of Josephus this week in an old uh, home that was built in 1810. And these people brought with them the works of Josephus, and I was kind of mesmerized by it because that book was very, very old. But Josephus, this ancient historian, actually talks more about John the Baptist than he does Jesus. Now, I'm not dissing Jesus. I'm just trying to convince you that John the Baptist was pretty powerful in his day. People knew him. He was well-known. And It's in this moment that Jesus shows up at the Jordan to get baptized. And John the Baptist is in the water. And and Jesus shows up. And I imagine it's like touched by an angel where his head just starts glowing. And there's, there's this aura there. And John looks up. And John instantly knows this is the Messiah. Funny thing is, they're cousins. 
Um, but this was the moment where John, it just, it clicks in this moment. And John says, who am I to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus responds and he says, let it be so, for it's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus knew that he had to get baptized by John the Baptist. So Jesus steps into the Jordan with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was there when the famous scene happens and the sky opens up and like a dove descends on Jesus and the booming voice of God. I would love to sound more like Morgan Freeman in this moment, but I don't. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That was an audible sound from heaven. John the Baptist is in the water. John witnesses this. Like, for me, it's like solidified. If I see that and I hear that and I experience that, I've got goosebumps on goosebumps on goosebumps that give witness to the fact that I've just stepped into a moment with Messiah. And yet it was this man who has doubt. Isn't that a comfort? Us, we, you, me, who weren't there to see the dove or to hear the audible voice of God. Like John the Baptist, we have doubts. But if John has doubts and he encountered that in in the flesh and he still had doubts, then suddenly it's all right for you and I to have doubts as well. Then John was thrown into a dungeon. Our text starts in Matthew 11, verse 2. John had heard in prison about the works of Christ. He was thrown into a dungeon. Why was he thrown into a dungeon? I'm glad you asked. He called out King Herod. He called out King Herod for marrying Herodias. Herodias was actually King Herod's niece. And Uh, He was basically saying, hey, this is wrong. It's not right. You should not be marrying your niece. Now, I know that sounds normal to us today. In our culture, marry your niece. But it was scandalous back then. And John the Baptist was calling it out, so he was thrown into a dungeon. And this dungeon is not like a penitentiary. Is that the word? Thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to say it. It ain't like the pen of these days. The pen of these days is like a nice pad. You know what I'm saying? Compared to the dungeon that John the Baptist was thrown into. He was thrown into a hole in the ground with other men. So there were all kinds of smells and body fluids and excrements and probably rats nipping on his toes. He's in a dungeon And he begins to have doubts and he's waiting for the good news. Like it's been 18 months now. I should hear the good news. Jesus should have made some progress. I need to hear the good news that I'm laying my life down for something that actually matters. He's waiting to hear about the revolt, Stefan. (laughs) Jesus came to overthrow the Romans. That's what he thinks. He doesn't yet know that the goal is for Jesus to die. He thinks the goal is to start a political revolution. And he's not heard about it. He, he thinks back to the prophecies of Isaiah. And he, he knows that the Messiah is coming to set the captives free. Why, why am I still in a dungeon? What, Jesus, do your job. Hey, Jesus, do you hear me? He's having the same conversation with a missing Jesus that you and I often have with a seemingly missing God. Hey, I think I've done my part. Your turn. (laughs) Jesus, it's, it's your turn to set the captives free. It's your turn to overthrow the Roman Empire. And he began to doubt. And you and I often doubt when things aren't going our way. We never really doubt when things are going great. Have you noticed that? Oh, I got a promotion at work. Man, I wonder if God's real. Like, 
that doesn't happen. It's when things are going poorly that we begin, we begin to doubt. And I just want to remind us all here today, don't interpret God in light of your tragedy. Interpret your tragedy in light of God. Someone else once said, and I love the saying, don't question in the dark what you know to be true in the light. If you, if you know on your best days that God is for you, then on your worst days, you go back and you remember, he's still for you. He didn't walk away. You weren't too bad. You didn't have your last chance. It wasn't three strikes and you're out. God is still for you today. Sometimes we need to go through doubt, though, to get to certainty. See, I'm not bothered that my kids have had moments of doubt. That's part of questioning. That's part of reasoning. That's part of building your own faith. I wouldn't want them to believe in a Jesus just because I told them there was a Jesus. I want them to know Jesus for themselves. I want them to encounter him themselves. And there were other men who doubted, by the way. Moses doubted. Remember Moses when he's leading all these people? He said, I can't handle these folks. God, just kill me now. He doubted that he was cut out for it. Elijah, same thing after defeating all these prophets of Baal, calling fire down from heaven, finds out a woman's after him, Jezebel. Once he finds out the woman's after him, he goes in a cave, hides, and says, God, just take me now. He had doubts. I, I love that story. You fought all those prophets and you're worried about, okay, I get it, all right. Then we've got the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that he was burdened beyond measure above strength so that he even despaired of life. He had his own doubts as well. If you have been overwhelmed, doubted, you are in good company today. There is, though, a difference. Can I have just a few more minutes of your time? Are you sure? Okay, I was doubting it for a moment. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. And I need to make sure that you know that. All right. When I say doubting is okay, doubt, doubting is part of the process. It's part of the building block of faith. It's part of getting to certainty. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is in the mind. Unbelief is in the will or the soul, the heart. And so we need to know the difference. When we, when we doubt... We're just trying to put pieces together. Just trying to figure it out. Just trying to make sure that, like, I'm trying to reconcile what I thought to be I knew about God versus what I'm seeing from him right now. And so when I have doubts, I'm just trying to put the puzzle together. Does that make sense? Doubt is a matter of the mind. Unbelief is a matter of the will. Unbelief is when we refuse to believe what God has said. And there is a difference. And even in the room right now, there is unbelief. There are some of us that have chosen to not believe what God has said. We refuse to believe it. Because our circumstances may look different than what God has said, so we choose to believe our circumstances rather than what God said. That's unbelief. I'm not suggesting that I want you to live in unbelief, but I will tell you, Doubt, if not resolved, will lead to full-blown unbelief. How many have heard of, of Thomas? Doubting Thomas. He's the disciple who had doubts. The disciple, the disciples, after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, the disciples saw him in person. And they went and told Thomas. Thomas wasn't there, of course. It's like, of all the times to not be present, Thomas... Of all the times for that, that to not, this is not the time. It's like we were driving in California on an RV road trip for 30 days. And poor Jordan, my 21-year-old son, he wasn't 21 10 years ago. He was 11, 10, 11. All he wanted to do was see a bear. That's all he wanted to do. And so we're driving in the RV, and we had driven, we had driven to Tennessee, and we saw Elvis's home. Nice, and then we drove through Oklahoma and outran three tornadoes for real in the RV. And then we made it all the way to California, 
and we're going through the redwoods and the different theme park, not theme parks, national parks. And we're driving, and I had a headache or something, and I'm driving the RV, and Jordan's my little buddy just sitting right next to me the whole time. I said, Jordan, can you go back? Can you go find my, my gout medication or ibuprofen, whatever? I sent him for a pill. And he goes back into the bathroom, and he can't find it. And he looks around and says, Dad, where's that? And so I give him further instructions, more clarification. So he, he goes in, and he's back there taking forever. All of a sudden, across the road comes walking a tiny baby bear. And all of us, except Jordan, are staring at this bear. And we're like, oh, how beautiful. What? And we're gooing and gone. And the bear goes off. Just as the bear goes into the bushes, Jordan comes running out and he goes, what, what was it? <laughs> Jordan, we, saw, we just saw a bear. I mean, he had been looking at, for bears since Oklahoma. We just saw a bear. And he, he was like, Are you, of all the times to be missing. And I think that's what Thomas thought. Of all the times to be missing, to not see Jesus with the, the hole in the side and the hole in the hands and in the feet. Thomas said, I'm not, in essence said, I am not going to believe it until I, I touch the hole in his side and touch the holes in his hands. And then later Jesus visits the disciples again and, and Thomas is there and in that moment, he knows Jesus is standing before him. And he says, oh, no, no, I, don't, I, I guess I don't need to see. I don't need to touch. I, I can sense that I'm standing in the presence of the Messiah. Thomas had doubts, but to be fair, let's be nice to Thomas because he was only asking for what everyone else had already experienced. We act like he's, uh, he's been given the title Doubting Thomas. A every church in America, when we talk about doubt, we got to bring up Thomas. He just wanted equality. That's all. He just wanted to experience Jesus the way the others had experienced Jesus. So, back to John the Baptist as I wrap up today. John was not entertaining unbelief. He just had doubts. The doubter doesn't have to abandon God. Unbelief is rebellion against God. Doubt is not rebellion against God. Jesus replied to John, Boy, he is so upset. <laughs> he is mad. He is mad. He's like, this preacher needs to stop. I'm hungry. I miss my grandkids. Jesus replied to John, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So what Jesus is really saying to John, John is like, hey, is this for real? Is Jesus really the Messiah? I think I'm about to die here. And he actually is. He's about to get his head chopped off and... He's like, I just want to make sure that I'm not dying for nothing. And Jesus' reply is brilliant. He's replying what Isaiah had prophesied about the coming Messiah. Isaiah had said that the Messiah is going to cause the blind to see and the lame to walk, the lepers to be cleansed, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised, and the poor to have the gospel preached to them. He's, he's just quoting Isaiah. And so this gives you and I, in my clothes, our three points on how to handle your doubt. Jesus solved it brilliantly. You will too, following his example. Number one, Jesus focused on refocusing the priorities. Refocusing the priorities. John the Baptist had unrealistic and unbiblical expectations that Rome was going to be overthrown. So Jesus is just, hey, the priority is this. The blind will have their sight. The gospel to be preached. The lame is going to walk. And number two, Jesus used scripture to refocus. Scripture. When in doubt, get the Bible out. That's pretty good. When in, I wish, I wish I had a song 
written right now, a rap or a dance or something. When in doubt, get the Bible out. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom. Put it on note cards in your shower. Some of you take so long of showers, you could memorize a lot of scripture in there. Just put it everywhere. Like, spend time with the Word, God's Word. When in doubt, get the Bible out. When in doubt, don't Google. This, this is just a good life lesson. It, take, take Christianity out of it. When you wonder about that little bump, don't Google it. Because then you think you're dying. And you find out later it's just an ingrown hair. When in doubt, don't Google. When in doubt, don't rely on Granny's testimony to get you through. Our families have a rich tradition of Christianity and encounters with God, but those old encounters won't resolve your doubt. You need fresh manna. You need a fresh word. You need a fresh revelation from God. You need to experience his presence again today. I know youth camp was great five years ago, but what about today? Jesus pointed John back to scripture. And then finally, he reaffirmed his identity, didn't he? Oh, John the Baptist is the greatest. He is the greatest prophet of them all. When you have doubt in your life, it is a sometimes not so subtle attack on your identity. So start there. We try to get our identity from so many places. From our career, from our job title, from our paycheck. Jobs were never meant to give you identity. We try to get our identity from sexuality. Sexuality was never meant to give you identity. Only Jesus can do that. We, we try to get our identity from the connections and the relationships that we keep. Only Jesus can give us identity. So when you have doubt, we need to get back to who am I? Whose am I? And who is God? Is God really who he says he is? Alex, will you run me a communion? A little communion. Thanks. no better time to take communion than on the spot in front of a hundred people that aren't taking communion. And also, there's no better time to take communion than right in the middle of your doubt. You see, this wafer represents the body of Jesus that was beaten for you and I. And when I have doubt, it tries to erase the memory of Calvary. It tries to minimize the effectiveness of Calvary, so I break it. Just as his body was beaten for me. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus. Just one drop can cleanse us from all sin. Because I'm in covenant with him. I am in covenant with my creator. Maybe, maybe we've just lost the meaning of covenant. I'm in covenant with my wife. I'm in, I'm in covenant with a lot of friends, family, covenant. 
But the meaning of covenant, this this covenant in the Bible, God told Abraham to take a heifer and a goat and cut them in half right down the middle. And there were one other animal. What was it? A ram. Cut them right down the middle, lay them on the side, and then two people who were going to, oh, I almost said make a covenant, covenant, but the, the real wording is cut a covenant. You don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And two people that are going to cut a covenant, they would cut these animals in half, the entrails would be everywhere, blood everywhere, just disgusting. You wouldn't want to wear your new Nikes through this thing. And you would rock right down the center of it, and then at the end of it, you would know that if either one of you ever broke the covenant, you would be torn in two, and you'd be demolished. You'd be torn in pieces just like these animals. That's how strong a covenant was. And Jesus, when he walked to you to make a covenant, he knew that you wouldn't be able to keep up your end of the bargain. So he willingly was torn apart so the covenant could remain. And that's what I remember when I receive communion. Father, we come before you today. God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sin. If you're in the room today, no one's looking around, no one's moving and you're ready to say yes to Jesus, you are ready to make Jesus Lord of your life. You've been running, you've, you've been making excuses, you've been putting it off, but today is the day. You just sense it, you feel it, you know this is the day for you, and you're ready to say yes to Jesus. You're ready to be in covenant with Jesus, knowing that you are incapable, you are incapable of living a life worthy of this. Jesus already paid the price. You're ready to say yes. Will you just lift your hand in the air so I know who I'm praying for. Thank you. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else? We've got one. Is there anyone else ready to say yes to Jesus? If you're watching online today, wherever you are, just raise your hand in the air. Put your hand on your heart. Do something of faith signifying this moment so you mark this day as the day of your yes. And then we pray together something simple like this. Church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross for me. From this day forward, my life will never be the same. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus laid his life down for me. He was placed in a grave and rose on the third day. I believe that I am a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, will you stand with me and can we celebrate the decisions for Jesus this morning? Hey, the Bible says when someone says yes to Jesus, all of heaven rejoices. So we didn't start that celebration. We're just stepping into what's already happening in heaven. If you said yes to Jesus, go ahead and scan the QR code. We'd love to walk this journey with you. Or if you're new to Christ and just want help growing in your faith, also scan that QR code. It's available out of the information desk. We have lots of resources to help you grow. Take what you received in here. Go give it to someone out there. And now that you've been to church, go be the church. God bless you.